particularly in the Mass this morning. We carry you within us. Your Spirit is present in us. Help us to do all that we can to strengthen it so that we become more and more like you. Carrying you in us, um, we are part of your kingdom here on earth. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let it be with us. Help us to make your kingdom visible here. Um, and all that we do in our work together, and all that we learn, um, help us to put into action, to live what we learn, uh, particularly when it's hard. Um, and we ask for your help in this. In Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. <coughs> I meant to. Um, I forgot about this until last week. We're gonna. I'm just gonna read one of Dunn's poems. Do you all have copies of the poems by Dunn? I forgot about this. I should have brought this out earlier, um, but being done triggered a memory. Louise Callan, who was my dissertation director at UD, um, um, put together a, a four-volume um, series on the genres, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric. Um, I've argued with Louise. She was my dissertation director, one of the great inspirations in my life. I've argued with her a lot in the last 10 years. She just died a couple months ago. That there were three, three genres. She was following Aristotle, and so do I. But the, the book that I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm making the argument that the ultimate source of the genres that we're doing are the three persons of the Trinity. I don't want to go into that, but, but, um, but this four-volume series that she's done is one of the most important because she's, the, she's one of only maybe two or three people who have taken seriously all four genres, all, all, or all three. Um, <clears throat> this was her last work, and in the middle of this book there is a, there's an essay by somebody you know who wrote on Dunn. So for those of you who are interested in looking more deeply into the lyric because we're just touching on it, you know, we're not going into it a lot. This is probably one of the finest collections of essays on the lyric itself. There's a particularly good one there. <laughs> anyway, it's called The Prospect of Lyric. Um, if you're interested in looking at it, I'll, here you can pass that around and you can... Here's the poem by Dunn. What is her name again? <clears throat> the Prospect of Lyric? No, her name. Oh, Louise Callan? You can, you, the book will come around. Just pass it around. Um, we, I, didn't I read the Nocturnal Upon Lucy's Day, that dark poem? I may have not been here. I don't recall it. I don't, I don't either. I'm reluctant to read it right now because it's a little bit long. It's it, to me the nocturnal and the Good Friday are two oh, of his most do beautiful it. poems. We can handle it. No, we can't. No, she. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a wife. That's exactly oh, don't right. Say just. You, uh -oh. saw, you saw it happen when she was gone. Um, Whatever you say. I'm going to read this. 
the nocturnal. Um, this is a poem that he wrote um, on on um, the anniversary the, of Lucy's death. There's some question by scholars who Lucy was. His um, his wife gave birth to a stillborn daughter. She died, and um, so there's speculation that it, it might be um, to one of the one of his um, patronesses, the woman whose name was Lucy, or his wife or the daughter that he lost. There's confusion. It doesn't matter. It's a lament. It's a poem expressing his grief at the loss of this. There's a whole different psychology, a worldview about spheres and planets and angels, angelic um, powers overseeing them that's part of the medieval worldview. We, we don't look at the world today that way, but it's embedded in the poem, and I don't want to go into it. We don't have the time, but just be aware that there are these angelic presences, the body and soul, the spheres. He's aware of all of that and believes that Christ made it all at the center of it. So I would encourage you to read the Nocturnal, or I mean the Good Friday, and I would have read the, the Divine Poem, Hymn to God the Father. I won't. Um, but if you do, when you do read a Hymn to God the Father, the last one, pay attention to Dunn's punning, because we've talked about the importance of language all along in our work together. He's punning on the word done. <laughs> Thou hast not done. You don't have him, the poem, the poet. Um, he repeat, thou hast not done, for I have more, I have sinned more and more, so you have not done with me. And then he, at, the end, at the very end he says, and having done that, thou hast done. That is, you are done, and you have me. So he's playing like poets have been doing from the beginning with words. So just be aware of that, because it gives another dimension of meaning to the poem. Okay? <clears throat> A nocturnal upon Lucy's day, being the shortest day. Notice how it begins, tis the year's midnight, and it will end with that same refrain. Um, tis the year, part of the beauty of this is he's struggling to find words to express that state that so many of us feel when we've lost a beloved one. I think particularly of spouses who get older and you know, they lose a spouse or parents can lose a child or a child a parent or the emptiness you feel because it's almost as if your whole being disappears. It's, a, it's as if we're on the other side of existence, like we've entered nothingness. It, the, the, the emptiness that we feel can be so great. So listen to those words as, 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 he, as he expresses his grief and the state that it leaves him, him at the news of this death. Tis the year's midnight, and it is the days, Lucy's, who scarce seven hours herself unmasks, the sun is spent, and now his flasks send forth light squibs, no constant rays. The world's whole sap is sunk. The general balm, the hydropic earth, has drunk, withered. As to the bed's fleet, life is shrunk, dead and interred. Yet all these seem to laugh compared with me, who am their epitaph. Study me then, you who shall lovers be at the next world, that is, at the next spring, new life coming back at spring. For I am every dead thing in whom love wrought new alchemy, for his art did express a quintessence even from nothingness, from dull privations and lean emptiness. He ruined me, and I am rebegot of absence, like he's been recreated into nothing, emptiness. 
and I am rebegotten of absence, darkness, death, things which are not. All others from all things draw all that's good, life, soul, form, spirit. Whence they being have, they all have being. That's what they share with God. I, by love's limbic, am the grave of all that's nothing. Off a flood have we two wept, and so drowned the whole world, us two. Off did we grow. Their love was so complete it drowned the world when they were together. And that sense of completeness you have with a loved one. Um, off a flood have we two wept, and so drowned the whole world, us two. Off did we grow to be two chaoses when we did show care to anything else. Those moments of not being complete with our loved ones. And often absences withdrew our souls and made us carcasses. But I am by her death, which word wrought wrongs her, of the first nothing the elixir grown. Were I a man that I were one I needs must know, I should prefer if I were any beast, some end, some means, yea, plants, yea, stones, detest and love. Everything, everything has appetite, all things in nature love, according to that world view. God was God created it, he was the God of love. I made that point, I think, last week. According to that worldview, all things are moved by love. They all have appetites. They move towards the good. A sunflower moves as the sun moves across the sea. You know, a wolf goes for... All things in creation are moved by love. Everything. Because the source of them is God. I should prefer if I were a bee, some men, some means, a plant, a stones, detest, and love. All, all, some properties invest. If I in ordinary nothing were, as a shadow, a light, a body, must be here. But I am none nor will my son renew. You lovers, for whose sake the lesser son at this time to the goat is run, to fetch new lust and give it you. Enjoy your summer, all, since she enjoys her long night's festival. Let me prepare towards her, and let me call this hour her vigil, and her eye, since this both the years and the days deep midnight is. Okay, let's start. I'm going to do something this morning. <laughs> um, you know from the beginning that I've been taking seriously um, what St. Thomas says we have to do. The truth is the conformity of the mind with what is. We have to make our mind conform to what is. That's what truth is. Yeah? It's the conformity of our mind. If we start twisting things to make our mind, the, the world fit our minds, we're screwing up God's creation. We've been seeing that in work after work after work. We've been looking at it in, in the Iliad. Uh, remember Poly, Polydamus constantly arguing with Hector to try to get him to do things, and Hector would never listen to him. So we've been, none of the men in the Iliad um, use their minds very well. Okay, we made the argument. What Homer shows is that the only man in that book who admits the truth about himself is Achilles when he reaches that point and said, I let everybody down. That was a radical moment in the Iliad. He's the only man to acknowledge the truth about himself, a fault. Thomas says the um, truth is the conformity of the mind with things, with what is. We've been approaching each work on its own terms. 
So when we read the Iliad and the Odyssey, what, what we're presented are these two extraordinarily great individuals. Achilles makes that choice finally to give up his life, gives up everything, and enters the, re-enters the war. Odysseus has to endure all these trials in order to, in order to learn about himself and about what's feminine in order to get home to Penelope. And when he does come home, because he brings so much with him, his relationship with his wife is radically changed. What we see between him and Penelope is a marriage that's far greater than anything we see in the other marriages, in Menelaus's and uh, Helen's and Nestor's and his wife, remember? So we see a different kind of home. We see the possibilities of what a home can be. So in the Iliad and the Odyssey, he gives this, this image of a great hero and a wonderful marriage. He shows us these great things. Um, I remember the delight I felt when we started reading the um, Aeneid because I knew that all of you would have these strange experiences because we just left this world where we've been shown these two great heroes and the first things we hear about them from Virgil is how awful they are. They're greedy and treacherous and cunning and um, what's that uh, word for that movie? Despicable. They're despicable creatures, men. And so right away we find that we're in a, a, a different world that Virgil has carried that Greek, that Greek world forward and changing it while he goes, transforming it. So we've been talking about that from the very beginning. And what we, one of the things we learned from Virgil is that, um, that one of the topics, one of the themes of the Odyssey was this topic of reading, how well people read. Remember, those, the, the, the companions don't get home. They misread everything. And looking back, we saw how often misreading was a problem in the Iliad. People constantly misread the gods. So I put forward the argument that all of us, and I'm talking to a senior group largely, <laughs> we're at the end of our lives. We don't read well. And we've reached a point at the end of our lives where the last thing we would admit about ourselves is that we don't read. Of course we read well. Give me a book and I'll read it. My contention is we don't. I mean, I said that to students who are one-third my age, and I would say it to adults because I know it from my own life at this point. We don't read well. And one of the things that we're helped to do with these epics is learn to read better, to, to see that whatever is present to our senses, what's right in front of us, has dimensions of meanings in it. And we have to be careful to learn to read better, to not take things for granted. One of the things that we learn in the Aeneid is that we can't understand the Aeneid if we haven't read the Iliad and the Odyssey, because both of those works are embedded in it, right? So Virgil is showing us that whatever happens in the historical present this moment contains all these other things. That's what's going on in the Aeneid. We saw that. The first six books of the Aeneid are modeled on the Odyssey. We saw how much he changed them. The last six books are modeled on the Iliad. Right? So, if you've not read them, the Iliad and Odyssey, there's so much you won't see. So when schools teach these works in isolation, all they're doing is reinforcing a, bat, a blindness, a habitual blindness. <coughs> we don't read well. It's one of the things, it's one of the prophetic aspects of poetry, because my claim, remember, at the beginning was, prophecy means showing us things about ourselves that so often we don't want to see. It's what Isaiah does, it's what the prophets do. 
It's showing us the truth about ourselves. It's giving, it's holding up a mirror, an image to us so that we can learn to see ourselves more truly. So I've been presenting each work on its own. So when we got to Virgil, <laughs> we kept seeing how awful these men were. We, we had to learn to see why, and that's what we've been dealing with. Now, I'm gonna do something I rarely do because our focus on is on the Aeneid today, but I want to ask this question looking forward. Why does Dante choose Virgil, not Homer, for his guide? I think I can do this legitimately within the limits I've set for myself here because we've just seen we can't read works in isolation. We cannot. They're a part of a tradition. If we're going to learn to read them well, we have to put them in light of other books. So we saw we couldn't read the Aeneid well without having read the Iliad and the Odyssey. We're going to be in Dante. And what we're going to see next week in Dante is that Virgil and Homer shaped his world, particularly Virgil. And here's the point I want to make today, because it's, it's sort, of, sort of extraordinary to think about it. Um, so this is looking ahead, but it, it's a way of highlighting something here in Virgil. The Protestant mind, by and large, not in its entirety, but by and large, the Protestant mind believes that we're damned. Yeah, we are. We, none of us can get to hell. Heaven. It's Catholic. I mean, sorry, heaven, thanks. <laughs> she, she didn't even miss it. I mean, that wasn't even... <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> you call it a Freudian slip. That's how it is. No, that's how it is. That's how it is. Now you can see why I missed her. So much. That's how it is when you're one. Um... We can't get to heaven on our own, right? No matter how good we are. We're damned. The Protestant logic is because we're damned, we're corrupt. That's one of the conclusions that most of the reformers came to in the Reformation. Faith alone. Um, we're corrupt by nature. Reason's corrupt. Our nature's corrupt. Milton's phrase in Paradise Lost was all corrupt. If we're damned, we're corrupt. A Catholic does not believe that. Catholic doesn't. A Catholic knows that we cannot get to heaven on our own. We cannot get to heaven on our own. Um, we're incapable. But a, a Catholic does not believe that one of the consequences of the fall was that we became depraved. The Catholic believes we were wounded in our essence. The Protestant believes our essence was destroyed, as if an essence could be destroyed. We don't believe that. Um, so, um, we believe that we were wounded, the name we've given that wound is concupiscence, the effect of it is concupiscence, that sometimes our desires for things can so overcome us that we feel absolutely corrupt, uh, that we're incapable of overcoming our sins on our own. The reason for saying this is, is this, that um, a Protestant would never take Virgil for his guide. Now stop and think about the implications of that. Because nature's corrupt and so were the pagans. They were damned. What good do they have to offer a Christian? The only source for salvation is Christ. I've been saved. Jesus is my Savior. Um, so the ten, the what, what incentive is there to learn from a pagan? Because what we've learned from Homer and Virgil, if we've been reading carefully, is 
There is in human beings this innate goodness that makes it possible for humans to do great things in the temporal order, in the temporal order. And it's been clear from these books that none of those, none of those pagans, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, could have done the great things they accomplished without the help of gods. Because the poets know that even if we're humans and our, our ultimate end is death here, I mean, we go on to the next life, we know from these pagans, they can't do, they can't achieve the good that they do without the help of the gods. The people who turn away from the gods, worse than human. The Cyclops, the suitors, Turnus, who blasphemes, Amada, who kills herself. You know, we can go on and on in the works that we've read. The people who twist Hector, who misread Portents all the time. You know, we can go on. So these poets are really clear that, that they're capable, human beings have this extraordinary innate dignity. They're, we are capable of doing really great things, but with respect to the temporal order. Christianity makes clear that our ultimate end is not this temporal order, it's beyond and we can't get to it without help. But just because we're damned doesn't mean we're corrupt. There is this great, great innate goodness in man. It's just that it's not sufficient to get to heaven. So why is Virgil his guide, a pagan? Dante chooses Virgil as his guide because, and so my question is, why Virgil over Homer? That's the question I'm gonna leave hanging over the class and hope to get to it at the end. Um, Dante chooses a pagan as his guide for two-thirds of the way to heaven. Virgil will guide him down into the inferno. He will take him up, the, up purgatory. Virgil, not a, not a Christian, Virgil, a pagan, up purgatory. It's only at the top of purgatory that he will say goodbye to Virgil. When Beatrice comes, Virgil says goodbye to Virgil, Beatrice comes and becomes his guide through the heavens. And she becomes his guide concerning those things that are supernatural graces that are beyond the scope of a pagan. But the guide for Dante up those two-thirds of the way to heaven is a pagan because there is much for us to learn in the natural order. And that's something we've lost a sense of, Catholics in the modern world. I get concerned because I really, I really think pretty seriously that that Catholics have become Protestantized without being aware of it because we're in a Protestant world and a scientific world that, that, that doesn't acknowledge a logos, the presence of a God in nature. So, so that's where we are. That's the question I'd like to just put out there to, um, just to be in the back of our minds as we go forward, okay? I what? love this class. I just have to say you what? <laughs> I love this class. <laughs> Where did that come from? What's that? Why? I don't What's... know. I'm just appreciating oh. you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. You know I love you too. Mm -hmm. um, even though she makes faces at me all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, Rome. I'm really sorry, those of you who are you know, coming in because you've just missed a lot. I, we just don't have time to go back. But the whole book is about the founding of Rome. One of the major, I mean, to me it's just amazing that we could do a course like this together. We started with Homer, we're doing this with Virgil. The central point, the major point of Virgil's Aeneid is the founding of Rome. 
It's the center of our faith. What do we know? What do we, as Catholics, what do we know is about our about Rome? I would say virtually nothing. What we've been learning from Virgil are these amazing things. And we've been talking about them all along. I just want to rehearse a couple of things that we don't have time to go into. What is Rome? Um, first of all, remember that we learned from the Iliad that Aeneas is of the line of Dardanus. It will never die out. So whatever Rome is as a city, it's eternal. Its sources are timeless. Its founder was Aeneas. He belongs to that line of Dardanus. So Rome, unlike the other cities, remember when we went through the, the cities on Aeneas' wandering, I called them dying cities. All of those cities um, were subject to some kind of decay, death, because they all had at the center of them a betrayal, too much greed, too much money, too much self. And what we were seeing as we went through the book is that um, what set Aeneas off as a hero from these other people is that he was constantly denying himself, constantly. He was called out to found this city. He has a vocation. We introduced the theme of vocation. Each time he thinks he's got it right, he finds out he got it wrong. He turns a corner expecting to find an answer to his calling. He follows it for a while thinking he's on the right path and discovers he's wrong. City after city after city that he attempts to found, he fails. So when he finally gets to Carthage, remember we, we talked about that moment, when he looks at the story of the Trojan War on Juno's temple, I ask the question, does he even know who he is? He looks in this story and sees this great hero, Aeneas, for the last seven years, his life has been filled with failures, defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. If there's one thing that characterizes Aeneas as a hero, I call him a working man's hero. It's not like Odysseus on an island for eight years, you know, struggling with the effects of a woman's beauty on him, which is a serious uh, power. He's trying to found cities and failing. The, one of the things that characterizes, that sets him apart from Achilles and, and, and Odysseus is he brings meaning out of defeat. He keeps going on. He doesn't let defeat stop him. Father's homilies weekly are self-denial, give up yourself, pick up your cross. So in, in, in ways, Aeneas is already foreshadowing Christ. Give up everything. Whatever Rome will be, it means you have to leave everything behind. Otherwise, it's going to be like all these other cities, dying cities. Betrayal, treachery, blasphemies. We looked at all the cities. Um, um, Aeneas, there's a universal quality to Rome too. When he gets to Italy, what we find is that um, all the various peoples are at war with each other. So there are these racial differences separating people. Aeneas brings to Italy Asia Minor. Remember, he, um, the Troy is, if you picture the graphic, the Mediterranean, Turkey is here. Troy is up here in the northwest um, part of Turkey. So he comes from Troy, which is Asia Minor. He has that year with Dido in Africa. He brings something African from Carthage. And he ends up marrying Lavinia, comes to Italy. So he brings the, um, the civilizations from three different continents to everything that he does in Italy. And he brings three different marriages. Creusa, who he had to give up. Dido, whom he had to give up. 
and then finally Lavinia, whom he's asked to marry, not by his own choice, but in order to help bring about this new city. So whatever this, and, and we, we, what we see in the last three books is, is this horrible, inhuman, um, um, racial hatred that sets these people against each other. So what he, what he brings is something from outside that culture to help unify, to bring these peoples together. In that sense, ancient Rome is the model for modern America. We were founded on bringing all people together to overcoming our racial differences, to not letting the fact that we're Hispanic or black or Greek or Turkish or Italian matter. That there was something greater than our racial differences that helped unify us helped us to see that there was something greater that we all have in common. So at the end of the war is what we've got, or I mean in, out of these wars we have this image that Rome is universal in the sense that it, it has within it a spirit that makes it possible to bring, overcome racial differences, to bring us together, to unite us. Um, now what were the, what were the costs? of bringing the city, what is this Rome? Do, do any citizens living in Rome today have any clue about this? I don't, not a doubt. What, were the, what was the cost of moving on? Remember, Virgil's called Melancholy Virgil. Melancholy Virgil. He's different from Homer because he, he's, he, he's constantly showing us that for Aeneas to go on, he has to give up something. First book, he lost a ship. Remember in the storm, described, they lost one of their ships. In the second book, he loses his country, his land. Troy's destroyed. We talked about the city's destroyed. He has to give up a way of life that's been his way of life for centuries, as far as we know. Um, the soil, the land, the people, nature, the seasons, all that became a part of his life were destroyed. He had to give them up. And at the very end, we saw that touching scene where he comes to the departure point where all the fugitives are gathering and his wife is gone. He runs back into the city and he sees the ghost of Creusa and she says, um, and kiss my... Sorry. She says, kiss my son for me. Our son. And she says, don't weep. Stop. It's just like a wife. <laughs> don't weep. Um, she said, it's not destined for me to be there. She completely relinquishes herself. As when we, we talked about the difference between Creesa and Dido, how possessive Dido was. So he loses Creesa. Um, second book. Third book. At the end of, remember he's telling his story about his journeys. At the end of the book, he, he says, I lost my father. And we learn then that he lost the father just after he comes to Carthage. So the book opens without our knowing it with the loss of his father. So every single book presents us with a serious loss. That's the condition for his going on. Book four, what does he lose? Dido. He has to, Mercury comes to him, remember, and he's terrified. His hair stood on the head. <laughs> Um, um, Mercury scolds him mercilessly, just says, what are you doing here building these walls for a woman? Get on. He, he goes to Dido and he says, I don't want to leave, but I have to. And 
you remember Dido's response. She's heartstricken and gives in despair and kills herself. Um, book five, when they um, set off for Italy, remember they go back to um, Trapanum, where he lost his father, and they hold the funeral games in honor of his father's death a year before. And the women burn the ships. The women say, we're too tired to go on. It's a, this, the, the epic is a masculine enterprise, a founding is a masculine. The, the women are guides, they are, or, or temptresses. We talked about that. The women here say, we've been at this too long. We can't go on, so they burn the ships. They lose four ships. So they lost one ship in the beginning, four here. They've lost five. They started with 20. They will go on to Italy with 15 ships. Um, book six, he enters the underworld and he has that exchange with Dido and she spurns him. Uh, we'll read it in a minute because I've got to read that. In book seven, um, we get the description of his losing his nurse and we talked about that. Remember, Odysseus, when he goes home, his nurse is there. The, so, so amazing. Odysseus goes home. His father's there, his wife's there, his nurse is there. You know, we talked about this. When, he, when Aeneas goes on to Italy, he has no father, he's lost his wife, um, and he loses his nurse here first thing. So what Virgil is showing us is that it, it's only with this extraordinary quality of detachment, the detaching, the turning loose of things, that he can go on to found this city, whatever Rome is. So Rome is slowly takes on this character, and, and by the way, when we get to Dante, Dante's going to see it very differently because as a, as a Catholic, he's going to talk about the Rome in heaven um, that all people are citizens of. But where did he get that? The, the, the ground, the beginnings of it are laid with Virgil. So the poet, we've talked about the poet as a prophet. Um, um, how are Virgil and, and uh, Homer different? I would call Homer the, the, the poet of the largesse of nature, of nature's largesse. And I really mean that seriously. Homer is the, is the poet of nature's largesse. It's steadiness. It's always there. All of Homer's similes are rooted in nature, right? Everything he, every simile is in natural terms. The, the frame of reference for everything at Homer is nature. There's this wonderful largesse, it's steadiness, it's always present. You can count on it. Um, I'd call Virgil um, um, the poet of the ephemeral, of the passing. Um, Virgil's called melancholy Virgil. And I, I'm going to throw this out now. I want to come back to it at the very end of our time today because to me it really sums him up. To me he's like St. Paul. He loved things enough to grieve for them. There was such a good in the natural order. He loved them so much that he couldn't do anything but grieve for them because he knew that everything in nature came to an end. It was passing. It would be lost. I mean, that's so fitting with everything we've seen about Aeneas, right? He has to give up everything. He has to learn to let go. So Virgil is um, the poet of the ephemeral, of the passing, and he brings to everything this grief um, because he loved it so much. 
um, but all he could do is grieve um, at watching it pass. He reminds me of St. Paul, uh, Joan Pruitt in, uh, in, in Monday night's class when I asked, um, when I was making this point, she, she said, she said, um, he's like Our Lady of Sorrows. And I thought, perfect, absolutely right on, absolutely right on. Um, if, you, if you think about two people, I was trying to find an analogy, if you think about two people putting on a birthday party, let's say two mothers putting on birthday parties, and one of them saw nothing but good, that, like Homer, that there's this goodness, I mean, Homer clearly saw the bad. You look at Achilles' shield, remember that war and justice are the eternal things that, that are intention. But if you, if you put two people, two women, overseeing a birthday party, and one just saw nothing but the good, and was glad at all the good there. And the other um, had this grief because she knew that one son had symptoms of polio or that she had the foresight to see that one of them would leave the church or, you know, who knows? Virgil is that other one. He knows that there is nothing in the world that can stand. We're under an order of, of mortality. That's what we're, our life is owed. We have father's homilies. I mean, he never stops speaking about it. Our, this life is going to go. It's all passing. T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Do we have the strength to look at this? I think last week I said that um, the Aeneid was not for timid souls. Isn't that the way I put it? Mm -hmm. Not for timid souls. Because everything about the Aeneid asks us to give up nothing less than everything. Virgil's that poet. He, he sorrows, he grieves because he loves things so much. He reminds me of St. Paul in that one letter. He says he has to go on to Christ, but he wishes he could stay here because he wants to help the people. That's, that's when Christ is off the horizon. You know, His grief is so great that he doesn't want to leave the people to them. He wants to help more before he finally leaves. So in all these ways, it seems to me, the, the, you know, we've been talking about prophecy as poets showing us things about ourselves that we don't want to see, but also in these works we've been shown more and more the, the poets are those who see in the particular moment two points intersecting. Whatever's going on right here in front of us, to our senses, has <coughs> other dimensions of reality. And Virgil did this extraordinary. I'll just give two examples quickly to remind you. One was when Aeneas left Dido, remember she gave him that curse. She cursed his progeny. She said, burning ruse will come down on you. I hope your progeny will do nothing but kill each other. That's 1,200 years before the Carthaginian Wars, the Punic Wars. So we see that Virgil's aware that the source of the Punic Wars, which almost destroyed Rome, was Aeneas' dallying with Dido, a sexual dallying. She curses him. That curse goes on for centuries. Um, and then when she dies, remember that description when she climbs on the pyre and then stabs herself and then sets fire to the pyre? The description is of Carthage burning. That was a proleptic image, a, an image anticipating, foreshadowing the burning of Carthage 1,200 years later when Rome will raise it to the ground, destroy it. The other, another image, remember when Aeneas is with Evander and Evander is taking him through the woods and he's describing this virgin forest, the primeval forest, 
and he keeps setting it against the capital, the Colosseum, of what it's become, that he juxtaposes those two points in time, this forest that was undeveloped, virgin. Remember, as the ships pass through the streams, the, 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 the waves look in awe because they've not seen ships before. This nature is innocent, primeval, that art hasn't imposed itself yet. So Virgil brings these dimensions of time in, involving centuries together. So the, they're prophetic in the sense that they're teaching us to see that whatever's going on in the present moment contains far more, far, far, far more than we could ever think. And the, the hubris, the, the arrogance in our character to think that we can under, that we understand these things, that we have all the answers for them, the way you know, we're encouraged to do in the modern world. But, um, so poets cultivate a different kind of sight. What the word came to mind when you just said that is the fog of war. You go into war having knowing idea <laughs> what the hell's coming. And, and, and thinking we do, yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And I made the point, I mean, times that, that very often when you look at politicians' solutions to the answer, Islam comes immediately to my mind. That is such a... Islam or the Mideast or, you know, whatever, whatever wars we're fighting with Russia that, that we, when you hear politicians give the solutions that they do offer for them, I mean, I, we, have to, we have to be practical. We have to come up with, we have to do something. Um, but I would feel a little bit easier if we came up with these solutions when I knew that the one who was offering them offered them because it was a practical, we had to do something now, while knowing that there's so much more going on and whatever happens is going to happen, it's going to take centuries to come out of these things because it's been centuries forming. So, so we've talked about the poets as prophets, that they, they teach us to see differently. And in our case, for our purposes here in a Catholic church, the contention from the beginning is, is that they deepen our faith. They help us to see so much more and strengthen us because they're all pointing us. What is Virgil pointing to? He's pointing to Rome, and I'm going to say at the end of the class in some ways, in amazing ways, he's pointing to Christ again, the, the parousia, the second coming. There is something just off the horizon. That's how the book will end. There's something more. What is it? You have to wait and see. Okay, some readings, just very quick. Um, because Suzanne's going to start making faces at me in a minute, because I'm way past time this morning. Um, let's take a look at Dido. Some of these things I just want to pick up, um, but some of them I'm, I want to read today because they're a setup for Dante. Um, you've seen, we've all seen together that um, we can't really understand the Aeneid well without having read the Iliad and the Odyssey. They're, they're embedded in the Aeneid. And we won't be able to understand Dante well if you don't see the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. So some of these things are, I want to read because it's going to be fun to watch what Dante does with them. You'll, take a, you'll see a pleasure. Um, you'll take a pleasure in seeing what he does with them. Page 175. Remember we saw that Virgil's treatment of the underworld was far more um, complex, far more differentiated. There are, there are many more areas in the underworld to show that Virgil is aware that, that, um, that what we do in this life gets carried over 
and it becomes greatly more dis distinguished one from another. So it isn't just the people in Tartarus the, who are in the bad part of hell and those in the blessed. There are these other areas in hell that show that what the effects of what people did in life are carried over and they're distinguished one from another. So here when he comes to the mourning fields on page 175, he, um, for a moment, he's, he comes across Dido. And this is probably one of the most painful moments in all of literature. And it'll be interesting to see what Dante does with it. But the fields of mourning came into view, so-called, since here are those whom pitiless love consumed with cruel wasting, hidden on paths, passed by myrtle woodland growing overhead. How appropriate. It sounds like are the, the myrtle, you know, the vines that's so much a part of romantic poetry, the, because the romantics were aware of this stuff and the, this, this sort of um, associations with death and self-pity and grieving. And In death itself, pain will not let them be. He saw here Phaedra, Procris, Epiphily, um, sadly showing the wounds her hard son gave, Evadne and Pasiphae, at whose side Laodamia walked and um, Caeneus, a young man once, a woman now, and turned again by fate into the other form. Um, watch what Dante will do with that. Among them, with her fatal wounds still fresh, Venetian Dido wandered the deep wood. The Trojan captain paused nearby and knew her dim form in the dark, as one who sees early in the month, or thinks to have seen the moon rising through cloud all dim. There's nothing like this in Homer, these metaphors, the language. He wept and spoke tenderly to her, Dido, so forlorn. The story then that came to me was true, that you were out of life, had met your end by your own hand. Was I, was I the cause? I swear by heaven's stars, by the, by the high gods, by any certainty below the earth, I left your land against my will, my queen, go down. I could not believe that I would hurt you so terribly by going. Wait a little. Obviously, she started to fade, to, to leave. Do not leave my sight. Am I someone to flee from? The last word, destiny, lets me say to you is this. Aeneas with such pleas tried to placate the burning soul, savagely glaring back, and tears came to his eyes. But she had turned with gaze fixed on the ground, as she spoke on, her face no more affected than if she were immobile granite or Morpesian stone. At length she flung away from him and fled his enemy still into the shadowy grove where he whose bride she once had been, Sychaeus, joined in her sorrows and returned her love. Aeneas still gazed after her in tears, shaken by her ill fate and pitying her. Remember that scene with her and Sychaeus. So the grudge that she, the resentment, the wound um, that she felt when he came to her. Remember, I read, I read that passage where she said, what am I to do now? Go back to my former, the men that she, who's, who wooed her. her. Her attitude was one of pride, just this, this um, hard pride. That, that it was more the pride of being rejected and what she would have the humiliation she'd have to face in, in, in allowing herself to be wooed again. So um, her response is this um, grudge, this hurt that she won't let go of. And when she talked with her sister, remember she said she was going to her, she was going to hold on to him, that he would not get free of her, that she was going to practice a magic, whatever that meant. I think what we see it means here is 
the grief that she knew he would feel, the guilt that he would feel at leaving, and it's clear that she's left him with that. She will not let it go. So in some sense, her word was good. She has this hold on him. He, he, that is, he carries this grief with him. There's nothing he can do. He's not a Christian. He's going to go to his death carrying this wound he gave and the sorrow that he feels now. So hold on to that. Um, remember, when he gets to Italy, he goes to Evander's camp. And we, we've read that. We don't have time to look at it again. Shortly after he leaves, or while he's there at Evander's camp, Evander tells him to go to the Etruscan king. And this is one of those moments that I'll come to in a, in a moment. The Etruscan king has been given a prophecy that um, he can only, his people can only be led by a foreigner. So they've been waiting for the Etruscans, the Lydians here, have been waiting for this foreigner that the, that the gods have been, prophecies, the omens have been talking about. So he sets off to the Etruscans to make an alliance with them, and on the way he camps for a while, and it's then that Venus gives him his shield, his new armor, and on the armor, um, we don't have time, um, page 256, I think, but just be aware of it, too. It, um, 252, 253. Um, on the armor is the whole history of Rome. The beginning with the, the wolf giving birth to the twins Romulus and Remus, and on, that's on page 252. Um, the civil wars, um, all of the history on page 254 talks about Caesar going to war with um, Anthony and Cleopatra. Um, the outcome at all on 255. All of Roman history is on this shield. Think about the difference between that and Achilles' shield, because remember, Achilles' shield, there were the two cities of men, the city at war and the city of justice. And that's what Achilles took to the war that nobody could look at. Here, what's unfolding is this um, um, all of Roman history. And notice the outcome of it on page 256. All these images were on Vulcan's shield, his mother's gift, were wonders to Aeneas, knowing nothing of the events themselves. He felt a joy in their pictures, taking up upon his shoulder all the destined acts and fame of his descendants. Nothing like this in Homer. This is extraordinary. Um, he looks at this stuff and has no sense of what it's going to be, but it will be, it's real. It's not imagined, it's not a fiction. These events actually happened because they'd already taken place, right? Virgil's living in, he's writing about 26 BC. The Trojan War took place at 1200, so he's 1200 years away. He's got all that history that he knows. It's set out there on the, on the shield. And yet he feels a joy. He looks at that knowing that it will come. The closest thing that I can come to is, is the position that we're in when we look at a saint that this will be, you know, here's this saint, Francis did this. We take a joy in it because it's done, brother, son, sister, moon. He loved them. It's real. The sainthood is real. So we have, we have some sense of, I mean, as a pagan, there's no way he could have understood that. He must have been puzzled. He could make nothing of it. It says all he could do is look at it in wonder. 
but he felt a joy. Were wonders to Aeneas, he felt a joy in the pictures. All he'd do is feel wonder, but he felt a joy. So think about the strange position he's in as, a, as the man going on to found Rome. He sees what's going to come. He's not going to have any part of it, It'll, you know, except in the founding. And yet, it's the source of some joy for him. So there is some consolation finally being given to him after all these long struggles about what he's looking forward to. Um, um, in book nine, when um, Aeneas is off um, making alliances with the Etruscans, the, the stockade he left at the Tiber River is under attack. Turnus attacks it. And um, remember, that's the, in book nine, that's the, um, that's the book in which Nisus and Eurelius, the two men, are sent out to warn Aeneas to tell him there's a danger to the fort. And both men die, remember? Um, Nisus is the older man, Eurelius is the younger one. They're, they're lovers. They're men lovers with each other. Eurelius is captured and um, Nisus, we don't have time to look at it on page two, 275, Nisus cries out and says, take me, take me, because he, he wants to try to save the boy. When he comes forward, um, they, the Rotolians kill them both, and then they <coughs> stick their heads, chop off their heads, and stick them on spears. I just, what does that line up with in the Iliad? Is that Hector and at the end of the war? I mean, who? Oh, I can't remember. It's not Hector. Mm. The Does other it, leader. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's a clear it's parallel. In book 10 in the Iliad, we had the night raid scene where Odysseus and Diomedes went out to scout the Trojans. The two Greeks went out, and remember they, I read the scene, they come across Dolan, who is the, the Trojan spy who's sent out, and they, they tell him that if he gives them the information they want, they will spare him. So he gives them all the information about strategically where everything is, and, and then they chop off his head. There's that, I read that scene, there's that funny scene where he chops off his head, and he's still talking while his head is coming off. Well, think about the Odysseus and Diomedes get back to camp with all this booty. They kill all these soldiers in their sleep. Here, the same thing happens. Nisus and Eurelius kill all these men. Eurelius becomes too greedy, takes all this stuff. Nisus has already said, come away, come away. He doesn't listen for just a moment. And when they finally do escape, there's that, that scene describing the light from the moonlight glinting off of Eurelius's helmet, and they're captured. But this is what I want to look at. So, so think about the differences between that. The Greeks get back loaded with booty. The two Trojans here die, and they die out of love. And I just want to underline that because the point that I'm going to make shortly is that love is entering this world in a very, very strange way, but real. Nisus, or Eurelius comes back to save his companion. He can't. They kill them. And then on page 277, look what happens. That morning, top of 277, each officer drew up his line of battle. These are the Etruscans, I mean the Rutulians, after the night sortie. Drew up lines of battle all in bronze, and soldiers gave their anger a fighting edge. So they're, they're facing the stockade. Aeneas has, has gone to the Etruscans to make a treaty with them, 
Ascanius and the Trojans are at the stockade. Aeneas told them, protect the stockade. Turnus found out and wanted to attack it. So the, the men who killed Nicus and Eurelius now approach the stockade. And soldiers gave their anger a fighting edge with diverse versions of the night attack. The attackers' heads, indeed, a ghastly sight, they fixed on spears and lifted and bore out in taunting parade. So they're waving these heads, taunting the Trojans with the heads of these two men that were lovers and beloved by the soldiers for their courage. Bottom of the page, the mother of Eurelius beholds this. Must I see you even, this is the bottom of 277, must I see you even like this, Eurelius? You that were in these last days the comfort of my age, could leave me, could you, cruel boy, alone, go down? Ah, God, you lie now in strange land, carrion for Latin dogs and birds, and I, your mother, never took you, your body out for burial. Going over, top of 278, your trunk dismembered all your mangled body, this is this all of yourself, my son? Think about how humiliating and degrading that what's left of her son is this head that she's watching this. All of yourself, my son, that you bring back to me by sea and land, did I keep this beside me? Put your spears into me, Rutulians, if you can be moved. So is there any, I mean, think about the difference. We've been talking about the differences. You, you, not, you've missed on but the differences all along between the Iliad and the Aeneid and the Aeneid. There's nothing. In, the Homeric world that compares with this. Um, page 311, Aeneas's return from making the truce with the Etruscans, and he's greatly supported now with the armies that he got from Evander and from the Etruscans. So he's beginning to bring these Italian peoples together. They've been looking for a leader. He's now here, a foreign leader. Um, the battle begins, and um, Aeneas um, tries to settle it with Turnus by saying that let the battle be decided by single combat between the two of them. Turnus um, breaks the pact that they make, and they begin fighting. The fighting breaks out. Pallas, young Evander's son, you remember the description of him, this noble kid who was the prince who was going to be the next king. Evander sends him in his place. Evander's has his Aristia. What does that mean? You should know. What's an Aristia? We talked about it in the Iliad. The Aristia is when a, a hero goes into battle and he can't be stopped. Diomedes Aristia. Um, Agamemnon had one, Achilles has one at the end, Aristia. We, we would use the term today as zone, when Michael Jordan is out on the basketball and he can't be stopped, or, or Joe, I remember Joe Montana when the 49ers would march down the field and game after, couldn't be stopped. I mean, you knew, they just, there was something that they did and nobody could miss it. Everybody was left in amazement. That these are those moments in Aristia that there's almost like a superhuman quality comes to them and they can't be stopped. Pallas has this Aristia, he's defeating everybody, he's this young kid, inexperienced in war, and then he meets Turnus. Um, on page 311, Turnus stabs him and kills him, and standing above his body, he does this, 
<coughs> Arcadians note well and take back to Evander what I say. In that state which his father merited, I send back Pallas, and I grant in full what honor tombs confer, what consolation comes of burial. No small price he'll pay for welcoming Aeneas to do such a thing. As he spoke, he paused with his left foot upon the dead and pulled away the massive weight of sword belt. On the sword belt is an image of um, a, a, a wedding. Young men murdered on one wedding night. Their nuptial beds bloodstained. It's an old myth. So the, the story on the sword belt was of a betrayal. Turnus stands on the body, puts his foot on it, and rips off in contempt. Aeneas and... Um, goes to battle with Mezentius. He was the head of the Etruscans, remember the king, who was such a cruel king, the Etruscan people got rid of him. He put bodies together, tied them together, and let them decay as a punishment. He's going to battle with Mezentius and wounds him, and his son, Mezentius' son, comes in to defend his father. Um, On page 324, Aeneas now has to fight this young prince. He's like the counterpart to uh, Pallas. This man came in to defend his father, um, at what to call it, but love. I mean, here's this despicable man, but he's still his father. And there's this scene, for those of you, if you've read Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, you know at the end there's this little boy who's the only one who stands up for his father when his father's a despicable person. And the end of the novel is a celebration of this kid because he was so forgiving, he didn't let the sins of his father keep him from loving him. It's a little bit like this. Um, Lausus comes in to defend his father. His father um, retreats, and Aeneas now does battle with Lausus and has to kill this young kid on page 324. Aeneas the top. Aeneas drove his tough sword through the young man's body up to the hilt, for it pierced the half-shield light. Go down, but seeing the look on the young man's faith in death, a face so pale as to be awesome, that Anchises' son groaned in profound pity. This is his enemy. He held out his hand as filial piety mirrored here, wrung his own heart and said, think about the difference between this and Turnus now, because this is what Virgil's doing. O poor young soldier, how will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? How honor you. God. <laughs> how honor you in keeping with your nature? Keep the arms you love to use. For I return you to your forebears, ashen shades. If this concerns you now, unlucky boy, one consolation for sad death is this you die by the sword thrust of great Aeneas. Then giving Lausus's troops a sharp rebuke for hanging back, he lifted from the ground the dead man as he lay, his well-combed hair soaking with blood. Um, he tells the men to pick this boy up, to honor him. Um, so um, at when uh, um, Mezentius gets news of his son's death, he is stung. This is this cruel man who's, who's been a, a, a monstrous kind of person. He hears about his son's death and then watch what's hap what, what happens on 326. Um, let's see. Towards the top. 
In that one heart, shame seethed again and madness mixed with grief. Three times with great voice he called Aeneas, who knew the voice and prayed in joy. So be it. So may the Father of gods and high Apollo bring it on. Begin the fight. Hard enemy, how could you think to terrify me now? My son is lost. That was the only way you could destroy it. Neither do I quail at death or nor act in difference. Um, on page 325, in the middle of the page, when he gets the news, he says, Did such pleasure in being alive enthrall me, son, that I allowed you, whom I sire, to take my place before the enemy's sword? Am I your father, saved by your wounds, by your death do I live? I now, at the end, exile is misery to me. Now the wound of it goes deep. There's more. My son, I stained your name with wickedness, driven out as I was under a cloud. How to explain this? This is a despicable man. He's a vicious man. At the news of his son's death, something overturns him. I mean, he acknowledges his cruelty. It's like a conversion, a, a moment of remorse. So, um, something strange is happening on this battlefield. We've seen, if you've read the Iliad, you know, scene after scene after scene, people get killed. Nothing approaching this. Love has entered this field. There's nothing else to call it. Aeneas is bringing something into this land that this land does not know. It's making conversions. It's changing the way people deal with each other. Hold Aeneas up with what he does with his boy against Turnus and what he did with Pallas. And look at the effect on Mezentius, who was a cruel man. If you've read King Lear, you know Ed Edgar, who is, or I mean Edmund, who's the one of the most monstrous people in all of literature. At the very end, when he learns that the women have died, he says, I pant for life. I have to do some good. Inexplicably, he just turns. We, as, as Christians, we know that happens. There's moments in our life where suddenly there's a turn. Augustine had a great turn in his life. So this is a pagan piece of literature, but extraordinary things are happening. We don't have time to do any more. I just want to um, I want to des describe the very ending, and then I want to stop and try to pull some things together very quickly because it's... We're already we late. We started so late. By the way, we usually I really do want to try to start at 9:15. A lot we had to move rooms today, and there were a lot of newcomers, so we got a really late start. But ordinarily, I'd like to start at 9:15 um, and end at at 10:45 just now. But I'm going to take a few more minutes. I hope you won't mind. Aeneas and Turnus have been. Um, um, straining towards each other. Turnus avoids him at some point. He wants to run away and they still fight and there's this moment where the two of them are in the field killing. Nobody can stop them and Virgil, Virgil has this poignant line where he said, how can I, how can I put such bloodshed down to song? Because remember he has to, this is a song, this is poetry. But finally, um, Turnus gets news that the city's on fire. I'll come to that in a minute. The city's on fire and he has to make his peace because he knows if he doesn't, his people will be destroyed. So he finally comes to Aeneas to settle the war in single combat. Aeneas wounds him on the very last page, 402. Um, Turnus is on the ground. Aeneas looks at him and for a moment contemplates mercy, sparing him at the top of 402. Clearly I earned this, this is Turnus, and I ask no quarter. Make the most of your good fortune here. If you can feel a father's grief, and you too had such a father in Anchises, 
then let me bespeak your mercy for old age and downness, and return me, or my body, stripped, if you will, of life, to my own kin. You have defeated me, the Ausonians have seen me in defeat, spreading my hands. Lavinia is your bride, but go no further out of hatred. He's about ready to spare him, or at least contemplating sparing him. He looks down and he sees Pallas's sword belt on his waist and recalls what happened. And then he's um, at the bottom, blazing up and terrible in his anger, he called out, you and your plunder torn from out of mine, shall, be, shall I be robbed of you? This wound will come from Pallas. Pallas makes this offering and from your criminal blood exacts his due. He sank his blade in the fury of Turnus's chest, then all the blood he slackened in death's chill, and with a groan for that indignity, his spirit fled into the gloom below. This is the, these are the last lines of the Aeneid. Now, I want to take a second here. I want to um, try to just briefly touch on these two things and bring this to a close. But before we do, when Aeneas goes into the underworld, the Sibyl, in that haunting, unreal, otherworldly voice, says, wars to come and another Aeneas, or sorry, another Achilles. Um, so he knows that they're going to go on to a war and that he may face the man that destroyed his city, whoever this figure, he doesn't know who it is yet. Repeatedly, Turnus identifies himself with Achilles, that he will, that um, he looks at, this identification is made repeatedly in the book. Turnus sees Aeneas as Paris, taking his bride. Okay, so he will be the Achilles to, to defeat Paris. Is that clear? Repeatedly says, I'm going to cut down these criminals for taking my bride. They, they call them the, these um, words that refer to Paris and, because they are Trojans. That he will be the Achilles. At the end of the book, um, Aeneas kills Turnus. And it's not uncommon for critics, modern critics, to look at this moment as a, as a reemergence of Achilles. That, um, and I, I, I want to I put this as provocatively as I can because it seems to me it's, it's, it's got to be looked at. We talked again and again and again about how um, difficult it was for Aeneas to leave the Greek world behind. That he was having to let go of things one at a time until he finally comes to Italy and he loses Cata, his nurse. That was the final act that seemed to put that Greek world behind. And we've watching a man's change. He's done nothing but suffer defeat after defeat after defeat after he's lost, he's left his home. He's got to let go of it if he's gonna create this new world. So he's left this Greek world behind. Uh, we don't see, the book doesn't end with the, with the founding of Rome taking place, we don't see blocks being put in place or buildings rising like Carthage when we came to Carthage. What we see, and we don't even know that Aeneas ever sees that. We, we don't hear anymore. This is the end of the story. The last act of the book is his killing Turnus. So lots of critics say, this is Virgil's way of saying you can't ever get rid of the Achilles in you, this man of anger. So we've got a problem at the end of this book. Is that Virgil's last word on this, that as much as he's trying to do to create this new world, he finally can't escape it. 
One thing I want to point out, um, I'm, I'm going to try to give my answer to that in a second. I, I don't agree with modern readers on this. You guys may differ, but um, over and over and over again, Turnus keeps seeing Aeneas as Paris, and we've got all these prophecies of this man coming from a foreign land who has to marry Lavinia. Remember, Lat Latinus got that same prophecy. He said, you have to give your, bride, your daughter up to a foreign-born. That's when he breaks his promise with Turnus, and Turnus wants to go to war with Latinus. And, and, and when Amada finds out Latinus' wife, she says, Turnus is foreign-born because he belongs to a different race in Italy. So she's one of these people who turns reality to make it fit what she wants. When she doesn't get what she wants, she kills herself. Turnus does the same thing. So repeatedly, we get these figures who continue to see Aeneas as Paris and twist the oracles to mean what they want. So one of the things that, um, that seems to me that makes it impossible to see this as Achilles, even though that's part of what's going on at the end, what Aeneas does, is that Aeneas is carrying out the will of the gods. He does not, he doesn't misread them the way Turnus and Amada and all the others do, who, who read the oracles in order to make them fit what they want. So there's a difficulty at the end, and I just want to put it to you, but, um, and a real complexity, and, and some people see that this is uh, Achilles um, re-emerging again. I, I think there may be something of that to what's going on, but I also think there's something else that we need to see. Um, um, now, let me quickly try to just put these two things together. And, and um, Converging realities. Um, remember when Achilles re-entered the war in the Iliad, nature was dislocated, the graves opened, the gods came into the war, and there was this great psychomachia, this cosmic battle. Um, and all of them were going to this point when Achilles re-enters the war, and when he does, he's described as being luminous, this light comes around it. To me, it, I, I took it as an image of the parousia. It's Homer's intuition of the parousia, the second coming of Christ that the king is returning in splendor and judgment. The same thing happened in the Odyssey. The king returns. We've been talking about that from the beginning. Um, so something similar to that is happening here at the end. The king is returning. And remember, Aeneas, when he comes to Italy, discovers that this was his homeland, that he's actually returning to origins. And he didn't know it. He thought he was giving everything up. Remember <coughs> that line from Eliot, in my beginning is my end. We were, I'm going to read that when we're going to do the fourth. In my beginning and my end. And we will recognize the place for the first time. Dante's going to do this in the Divine Comedy. He's going to go back to origins. So Aeneas, without even knowing it, is going back to origins. The return of the king. But it's very different from the way it's presented in Eliot. A great number of events are taking place that show this convergence. When he begins the, when he gives his invocation, I think it's in book six, he makes his appeal to Irado, the, the, um, the muse of love poetry. 
Because what Virgil, even though we get nothing but bloodshed and war, what Virgil's showing us is that love is entering this world. This is a pagan. We've seen it with what happens with Aeneas, or, um, Aeneas in the battlefield. All of these realities are converging to a point. What is this point? Um, um, the word advent, advent, we call it advent, means arrival. It means to come to. Something's coming. Prophecies have been pointed. Latinus hears the prophecy of the stranger to come to wed his bride. The Etruscan people are waiting for the stranger to finally unify their people. These people go to battle. Turnus acknowledges it. Um, we, I, we didn't have time to read this. In the, in the last two books, Turnus is at the pass waiting to ambush Aeneas. He gets word that the city's on fire and that Camilla has just, no, that Camilla has just been killed. The Volscian queen is such an extraordinary warrior. And he despairs and he leaves the pass. Two moments later, Aeneas goes through the pass. When Turnus was in the stockade, there's that, that line, we don't have time, where he says, where Virgil says, if he had his wits about him, he could have closed, the, opened the gates while he was in there and let them in, and that would have been the end of the war. Turnus lets a moment go that could have stopped everything. He could have defeated everybody. When, Vir, when Aeneas comes through the pass, he suddenly sees the city, and there's the description of it's calm, defenseless, peaceful. He says, go torch that city. Go torch the city. If they don't come to terms, we're going to destroy that city. Puts a torch to the city. Turnus is in despair when he sees the city, and he finally agrees to one-on-one -on -one combat, and the war comes to an end. But there are all these things happening. One of the more important is, Turnus is there at the pass. He gets the news that Camille has just been killed, and he leaves, and, and Aeneas brings his troops through. They would have been destroyed two minutes earlier. All these people are coming together. So what's happening? Virgil's showing us that whatever this Rome is, whatever this Rome is, it's not like other cities. Um, and I'm going to lead with two last things. Um, um, Two last thoughts. Oh, where is this? Sorry. Um, here. This is in the underworld, which we didn't do in a 169. One yeah, 169. Remember when. Aeneas went into the underworld with a Sibyl. He first, what he first saw on the, on the gates of the temple was the Minotaur story, and we talked about that, that, that um, I think we're meant to see that Aeneas is like um, Theseus entering the labyrinth to defeat the Minotaur. That Aeneas is going to Italy um, is the same by analogy, that he's going to have to face that man-beast. If you remember from your reading, when he comes to Evander's city, they're celebrating Hercules' defeat of Cacus, the, the man-beast. That for them to settle that city meant Hercules had to overcome that, because that is the great task fast facing all of us, men and women.
And we have to learn to overcome the beast in us, the, the bull, the minotaur. Remember the Pacific, Minos's wife, mated with the bull. She, she was so entranced by the sexual power. We talked about it. This is what Aeneas sees after that, when he enters the underworld. And I just want you to hold on to this. Um, the middle of page 169. Before the entrance into the jaws of Orcus, grief and avenging cares had made their beds, and pale diseases and sad age are there, and dread and hunger that sways men to crime and sordid want, and shapes to affright the eyes, and death and toil and death's own brothers sleep. Go down. Discord. Viperish hair bound up in gory bands. In the courtyard, a shadowy giant elm spreads another ancient boughs. Her ancient arms, where dreams, false dreams, the old tales, goes. Beneath each leaf cling and are numberless. There, too, about the doorway forms the monstrous crowd. Centaurs, twi-formed skillas, hundred-armed briareas, and the Lunanians, hydra, hissing horribly, and the chimera breathing dangerous flames, and gorgon striking. By the way, this is all, Dante. when you get to Dante, this is going to be Dante's hell. This is our afterlife in sin. Here, Garion, triple-bodied ghost, here swept by sudden fear, drawing his sword. Aeneas stood on guard with naked edge against them as they came. If his companion, knowing the truth, had not admonished him how faint these lives were, empty images, hovering bodiless, he had attacked and cut his way through phantoms, empty air. There's that long section in the last book where he's chasing Turnus, and Turnus is described as a phantom. This image keeps eluding him. So, why how am I putting these together? I think what we're meant to see from everything that, oh, remember, in, in the Odyssey, when Odysseus told his story, when he came to the Phocian Island and told the story, remember he'd been nine, nine and a half years away from Troy on his, on his journey. The underworld is included in his stories. It was one of his adventures, remember? It was one of the things he encountered. When Aeneas tells his stories, it doesn't include the underworld. He tells of all the cities he encounters. Then he goes on to the underworld after he tells the stories. So the underworld here is not a part of the stories. Why? I think because for Virgil, the underworld is a picture of, of final ends, of what we make of our lives that very often we can't see why we're alive because we're too busy covering ourselves up or that all of us have these sins, these what I've just been describing, the dreams, the visions, the images, you know, that remember we I talked about the Plato's cave and the, the seeming, that all of us carry these sins within us. Um, the underworld has a reality independent of anything that could be made of it in a story. It's real. It shows us what we don't want to see in life. Well, something about something that's very real to us. Remember what, what gate Aeneas comes through at the end? The ivory gate, the gate of false dreams. So when he returns to the world, he's bringing something, false dreams, something that's going to be driving him in everything he does. My, my comment on that when we talk about it is that Virgil is realistic enough. He's a realist in this sense that he's more aware than most people of the illusions that lead most of us. 
But so often we think we're going to do all these things. And so much, so much of what we do is going to come to an end. All the Father's homilies, again and again and again, keep saying the same thing. What does Christ say? Give everything up. Give everything. Go to a cross. So, um, two things. All of these realities converging to a point, an advent, something's coming. What is it? Is Virgil's vision of Rome, the Colosseum, the Capitol, you know, all of the things that are physical and in place, the government? It seems to me that it's not, that Virgil's vision of Rome is that it's not yet. Not yet. There's more. Even if the cost of it is killing, I mean, Aeneas has to kill Turnus. That, that for anybody to get caught in the world to believe that what that he can give any finality, bring anything to its completeness in this world, is an illusion. And now I'm going back to this, this view that I threw at you in the beginning. That Virgil is the poet who's aware that all the enterprises, that all of our undertakings, that all the things that we attempt to do, come to nothing. Um, that, um, does that mean there's no greatness or goodness in it? No, look at, look at Aeneas, because he's the image. But if we take Aeneas, it's really clear what the cost of that is, because for Aeneas it means giving up everything, surrendering his will, doing what the gods ask of him, denying his own will, going on, being defeated, going on. So, um, so once again, um, we have a poet who makes us aware of what, what the church calls the parousia, the second coming, the return of the king in glory and victory, bringing something in Virgil's vision of it. It's not yet. There's something more. Whatever Rome is, it, it certainly means there's a physical place, a geographic place. Does it, what, does it mean what mo most Romans think it means? <laughs> I don't think so. That's an image of like a porthole through which there's something more. That's our faith. So in that sense, I'm, my argument is that Virgil is this extraordinary guide to us that he's helped take us more deeply into our faith in the natural order, to struggle with things in the natural order and still give them up for something not yet. So in that way, um, he's the poet of the advent, that something's coming. And I, um, I, I said last class, I, I, for those of you who don't know, one of the amazing, this is, Christ is 25 years away. This is about the founding of Rome. Christ is 25 years away. I mean, it's just, it's stuck. This happened by accident? God, it's just amazing to me. In his eclogue, in the fourth eclogue, in Virgil's eclogues, he wrote three books. This is one of them, they knew. And in the fourth eclogue, he has a prophecy about a boy, a child who's going to be born, who's going to unify the world. Fourth eclogue. This child will come. I won't read it now, but... So, my contention is that Virgil is this guide on the way to grace. Um, he's not a Christian, but um, St. Augustine, you know, all the early fathers. Augustine wept when he read this book, you know, the Diocene, the Creusocene. That he's, he's the poet of showing us the cost of what as Christians we call grace. That he's moving us there, but from this side of Revelation, this side of the world. Let me stop, because I'm way over time. 
into Give me that look. <laughs> I enjoyed I, before, every minute. I enjoyed every minute. Before we stop, do you have any, I, I, we, ordinarily I'd like to leave a little bit of time for questions, and I know it's really late, but do any of you have any questions that you'd like to? We're hoping not. <laughs> then it's up to them. Say again how Virgil is like Paul. The essence of the, essence you, of you know, if you if you in Homer in Homer that's a really good question. In Homer, in the Odyssey, when Odysseus gets home and Odysseus is gonna meet um oh um Umias, the sheep herder, the sheep herder. Who's, remember, he stays in his hut and he doesn't reveal himself right away. Repeatedly in those narrative sections, when Homer's describing that return, he says, Oh, Eumaeus, oh, Eumaeus. He's, direct, he's directly addressing him in the poem. And we get the story that, remember, Eumaeus was a king, or the prince, or the heir, and these Phoenician women stole him, so he was destined to be a king, and he ends up being a shepherd. So Homer's aware of evil in the world and what it can do. Eumaeus doesn't resent, he doesn't grudge, he's not saying, poor me. He gave that, he's a servant to Odysseus, could have been a king. Um, but Homer addresses him, oh Eumaeus, and maybe speaks a tender word to him. That's as much as we get in Homer. In Virgil, we get grief everywhere. Losses, sorrow, grieving, the mother losing her son, you know, Aeneas losing his father. There's nothing like that in Aeneas giving, remember that scene with his wife where he has to say goodbye to Creusa and she says, don't cry and kiss my son for me. Um, in, in Virgil you get all these um, scenes in which there's some great loss that's personal. Um, so chapter after chapter after ch chapter we're left with these griefs when you put it all together, it's, it, 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 it explains why, why critics call Virgil melancholy Virgil, that there's this, that we don't feel with Homer. And I would go just a little bit farther, that the reason for it is that he loves these things so much, he loved the goodness of things so much, that it left him with this great sorrow at knowing they would pass. Because all things in this world are illusory. People have these great things that they're going to do, and they so often come to nothing. Defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat after, and it ends. We don't see the buildings going up. We see him killing Turnus, which makes him look like Achilles. I don't think he is, but there's something of that. But so in Virgil, I, I thought um, Joan Pruitt's um, comparison. She said he's like the Lady of Sorrows, or I think I, my first thought was he reminds me of Paul. That he he so loved the world. He so loved the goodness of it that all he could do is grieve because he knew it would all come undone. It would all have Father, pick up his cross, give up everything, stop. You've got these good things that you don't want to give up and you hold these things on the margin. What was his word? Not, not margin, but the homily this morning. He said, you know, you, you still want to hold out. You still want to hold on to some of these things. And you have all, we have all of our reasons. Virgil's Aeneid is a book about giving up nothing less than everything. We have to give it all up if we're going to go on. So in that way, he's, to me, he's like Christ, and in so far as he's, he reminds me of Paul, you know. Did you use the comparison that Paul said, you know, uh, I want to be with Christ, but I need to be here doing good. 
is that yeah. the comparison? I can't, I can't. I can't remember the letter. I got to look that up, but it's in one of his letters. I don't remember who. Well, I thought you said that earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the letter. Did you say you were going to come back to Dante? Why did you choose Virgil? Well, don't you see now that that because he he is he's far more realistic in being aware of of the natural good and all that you have to give up because. What we'll see in hell is that people won't give it up, and in purgatory, they're giving it up. Purgatory is learning to order our loves, to, to give up those attachments that keep us from loving the way Christ does. And Virgil is, in that sense, a perfect guide for you know, all the reasons that we've been seeing. So. Hell, we won't give the things up. Purgatory, we're giving the things up in paradise. Is, is all of it comes back multiplied infinitely. Right. No. Okay, let's stop. Uh, Sorry for keeping you all so long. Yeah, thank you so it's you. Monday night's class. Yeah. The first and class of Dante. Of the last <laughs> class. <laughs> class. <laughs> Good, because I'm... What time is it? Seven? <laughs> no, I'll be here. No we have a night's meeting, but I won't go to it, because I can only do this yes. on Monday. Because Fridays I have to... Oh, right. I'm busy with... So, but we have a meeting, so I will eat and then I'll skip the meeting and come. Okay. Yeah, it's at seven. But I might need to go. Can you turn these down? Yes. Oh, this is all we have for Donnie. What does this say? Next week, we start the Divine Comedy, but I'm not going to jump into it. It's going to be mostly an overview. Do that because I, I got to, you got, yeah, I got to get the big picture. I won't see you anymore on Friday because I have to come on Monday. Oh, oh Marianne, I'll miss you. Yeah, well, my husband did a night oh. every Friday during oh. Lent. We have to set up for fish fries. Oh, that's right. So I'll do it every Friday. Well, I'll see you at the fish fries. All right. And you'll see Sue because she'll be right there with me. Okay. All right. I'm going to. Do you all usually come? I want her to. Yeah, not everyone. How about the chili cook off? Oh, I'll be there. All right. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. I feel really bad about part of my ministry at the church <laughs> serving the wine at everything we do. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's. Why do you feel bad about this? Yeah, that's. <laughs> it's not much of a ministry, is it? It is a very important ministry. Yeah, this one? I don't think so. Okay, that's that one. And there's Dante's historical background between the Gulf and the Ghibelline. Well, I guess not. Oh, oh, there's a brief thumb. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have it. So. I had three things. Yeah, I have that. That's why I ended up bringing stuff back because I had two copies of different things. Yeah. Ooh, it's hard work. Yeah, it is. Canadian. No, I don't know that. Are you going to continue on after the Divine Comic to these others? I don't know. You meet over in the parish hall on Monday night? See what happens. Unless we get bumped. I read it. Yeah, better. Yeah. I loved Moby Dick. Thank you.